and turn to Psalm chapter 90, Psalm 90. Of course, uh, I doubt there's anyone here today who is not aware of what today is. Today is the 10th anniversary of the attacks of September 11th, as, and uh, there are many, many stories that are being told, and of course, as you just contemplate what is going on around us and what is happening in our city this day, uh, we come down here to verse 9, and this verse has just kind of been on my heart most of uh, the last week. It says, for all, of our, for all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. We spend our years as a tale that is told. And, and most of the stories we have being told about September 11th are, are simply being reduced to just a tale. A very short, succinct story. I mean, it's got to fit in the news media's 60-second time limit or whatever so that it can um, be uh, this small, concise little package. And it's easy to forget or to ignore the lives that were lived and were lost on that day. And as we look through here, this was a, a psalm that's a little different than most of the others. This psalm was written by Moses. Uh, look there at the very beginning. If you have a Bible that has some of the notes, it says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And what I want us to do here is we think about that tale that is told. What is going to be the tale of your life? When people tell your story, what's it going to be? I think of many, many stories that I have heard concerning September 11th. A preacher a friend of mine down in Washington, D.C. area on the Virginia side, his son and family had were visiting New York City on September 11th. Their plan was to go to the Twin Towers and uh, see the observation deck on September 11th. And they were going to get up very early in the morning, and they said the next thing we knew, it was 9 o'clock. We had all overslept. He said, we turned on the TV, and it had already happened. You see, somebody said, where was God on September 11th? Uh, he was protecting Michael Baldwin and his family by letting them oversleep. I heard the story of one fellow on the radio yesterday. He, said he was making a presentation to a group of CEOs in one of the towers. He said, I forgot some papers and I had to go back to my office. And while I was gone, the attacks occurred. Another man in Brother Baldwin's church there in Virginia worked in the Pentagon. He said, I was on break, and he said, I wanted to get a Snapple. So I walked around to the service area, and I tried to, I put my money in the machine, and it wasn't working. And he said, I was just so mad. He said, now I'm going to have to walk the whole way to the opposite end of the complex to the next uh, machine that is operating, he said, and while he was on his trip, the plane came in and took out that machine and that whole section of the building. He said, if that machine had been operating, I'd been standing there sipping on my Snapple when the planes would have hit. Let me tell you where God was. He was doing a lot on that day. Before anyone knew what was happening, even the most conservative estimates were in the thousands and circling around 10,000 people would say, be a miracle if only 10,000 people would die. I'll tell you, it was a greater miracle than that, amen? 
And yet, ten years later, what do we have? We have the stories that are being told. And one of the most often asked questions in the ensuing time of, well, you're a preacher, you're in New York City. What have, what have you changed since September 11th? And I was really taken aback by the fact that, well, we really didn't change anything. We, we, we're still preaching, we're still holding services, we're still passing out tracts, we're still trying to get people to say, get trust Jesus as their Savior, we're still uh, just doing the thing. And all of a sudden, after being embarrassed by saying we really didn't change anything, I, I began to realize that we were already doing the most important things. And... That's where we were. That's where we ought to be. You see, if some set of circumstances happens to you and everything changes in your life, maybe you weren't doing the right things before. We want to be prepared. But let me ask you, on September 9th, other than possibly a few of these uh, uh, super uh, thinking guys in the Pentagon and places like that, who would ever conceive of such a plan? None of us could ever think of such a thing, that a person would actually get into a plane and drive it on purpose into a building to kill people. And yet, we've spent all of these billions of dollars and say, we're going to be ready the next time. Could, could I challenge you, as we go through this psalm, we're going to find tomorrow's headlines, I believe. You see, nobody can be ready for it when it happens by trying to get ready for it. Because no matter what it is, it's going to change. It's not going to fit your plans. Uh, you're not smart enough to figure it out. And so as we look at this psalm that was written by Moses 1,800 years before Jesus was born, I want us to contemplate that tale that will be told about our life and how we can make sure that the right story is told. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we contemplate your word this morning, I ask that you would give me the ability that the Holy Spirit would just take over at this point and get all the thoughts and things that are confusing and conflicting out of my mind, that your word would be presented clearly and truly this morning. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in hearts and lives of individuals here, that not only would we hear your word, we would do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We start in verse 1, and we're going to read... Uh, right down through the end of this psalm. Let's read the entire psalm this morning. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, and when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as asleep 
In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years Wherein we have seen evil, let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Now this is the psalm that Moses wrote. And I want us to spend our main time on the last portion of this psalm. We have a kind of building in the beginning. Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Isn't that a wonderful thought? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the accomplishments of this generation or the generation before, or a hundred generations before. It is about God. Before creation, it was all about God. Time, which is so important to you and I. Do you realize that if you could be disconnected from time, that when you lose track of days and nights and weeks and months, you also lose your ability to think and to reason. You lose your sanity. It is connected. It's all put together. But God does not need time. A thousand years. And by the way, in the book of Genesis, it's the evening and the morning. 24-hour days God created the earth. Don't let someone talk you out of believing what your Bible says. But those days are nothing to God. He is not inside, locked inside this capsule of time as you and I are. Don't fight against time. It's not your enemy. It's not your friend. It's your context for understanding what is going on around you. That's all it is. Use it. That's what this psalm is all about. But God is the context for everything before creation, during creation. But God is a God that believes in the difference between right and wrong, my friend. And if we look at the history of mankind, it is a history of the failures of mankind, is it not? I mean, it is the big... Sins that make the headlines. What did one guy, uh, the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads, something like that. Uh, you know, it, if there's got to be something about man, and man, man doesn't print good news. When's the last time you heard something good on the radio? They'll have, oh, this is just one of those feel-good stories, but... 
man is all about what we do wrong. Isn't that true? It says, our days are passed away in thy wrath. Let me, let me tell you, God still judges sin. And when the tale is told, what's going to be the story of your life? I can't wait to get back into my office. If I could, I would, uh, I would have had access to a file. There's a little poem. It's called, about the, called The Dash. And it was written about a group of people that were at a cemetery and they were, cel- they were having a, a funeral service and they said, you know, the, on the tombstone is the year the person was born and the year the person was died and in between, there's just a little dash. said, what I want to do is I want to spend my dash wisely was the point of the poem and Sweet little thing, and it would have really been nice if I could have read it to you, but you pray I get into my office and can get back to my stuff again, and we'll, we'll have a few more things like that, I hope. But what is your story going to be? When people relate your story, what are they going to say? Immediately after the Clinton administration and all the events concerning 9-11 as they transpired, there was even some talk that Bill Clinton had wished some catastrophic event like this had happened during his administration so that he would have had the ability and the legacy of solving the problem now, I'm not making this up. It was really being discussed in the talk shows and stuff. Could I tell you the height of arrogance that it would take to even think that kind of thought? Greatness is not something that you plan and prepare for. It's something that ought to be the natural result of who you are and the circumstances you find yourself in. You study the history of the American Revolution and George Washington, our first president. If you have opportunity to read, I I would recommend Mr. McCullough's book, 1776. The premise of his book is simply this, that the outcome of the American Revolution depended and was built upon the personal endurance, stamina, and uh, abilities of George Washington. If he had not been a man that could endure the things that he did, that did not have the physical strength and attributes that he did, that the revolution would have ended and fizzled out. But you know what? George Washington did not seek to be the commander-in-chief. In In fact, uh, I was just flipping through some old radio shows, and they had one uh, about all of the plotting and the planning of even his own generals trying to supplant George Washington and have him removed as commander-in-chief. Absolutely amazing. But as Moses comes up, he is not making a point of despair here. He's saying, listen, it's all about God, and God judges sin, and God is going to deal with us. There's nothing that we can hide from God. And when it's all said and done, all you're going to have left is the tale that is told about your life. So let's do something about it. And that's where we're going to start our main message this morning. Look at with me, if you would, in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. If you like words to remember, let me give you this word. 
priority. How many of you have a priority list? Everything is top priority, right? And no. We get done what we have to get done, do we not? It doesn't matter how many things are on your list. When something comes up that's an emergency, you take care of it. You just do. You have to. The Bible says, teach us to number our days. That we can apply our hearts unto wisdom. How many times, I, don't, I hope I'm not the only one that's done this, don't believe I am. We set ourselves to a task, we set ourselves to solving an issue that needs a, a, accomplishing something that must be done, only to find out that all this energy and all this direction has been put in the wrong area. Has anybody else ever had that happen? Okay, it says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now, that word apply doesn't mean to fill out a job application. It's more the idea of what happening, happens after your application is accepted and you start working for the company. That's the, that's the real idea of what this word, apply my heart. It is not just, okay, God, I want to try out for wisdom. Read James chapter 1. We're to ask wisdom. God wants us to have wisdom. God wants us to know what we ought to do. He wants, but it's not going to happen until you put forth some effort. We have this kind of passive Christianity today where we sit on our blessed assurance and just wait for the blessings to fall out of heaven. That's not Bible Christianity. The other extreme is where... We work and we do all of these things and we plan and we get all, put forth all of this effort so that one day we might be good enough that God will give us salvation. Can I tell you that both extremes are just as wrong and just as great a perversion of the Scriptures? It is not just a passive thing that God does to you, nor is your salvation dependent upon what you have done. It's dependent upon what Jesus has done. But Jesus expects you to do something with your salvation. Could we have an amen on that? That's what Paul meant in Philippians when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about working out a deal with God to get saved. He's talking about receiving the gift of God's salvation and letting it accomplish something in your heart and in your life. It's making a choice to apply my heart. How many of you have ever had to do something your heart wasn't in it? Oh, man. I've got to take out the trash. How can your heart be in that? How can your heart be in washing dishes and sweeping the floor and doing laundry and changing little diapers and all the things that we have to do sometimes? Oh, it's real easy if you let it be. How many of you have eaten food that was prepared without any heart? Ooh. I mean, all the ingredients are the same. But when there's some heart put into that soup, I don't care if it's just plain old beans. You put a little heart into that, you get that pot of beans that was made by somebody who cares about what they're doing. And it just tastes better. Now, doesn't it? 
but how many times do we come to church without our heart in it? It says, apply your hearts unto wisdom. It says, number our days. Lord, teach us to number our days so we can apply our hearts unto wisdom. If we could only get past the the pressure and the slavery of the immediate and just trying to get by and trying to do the best we can and apply our hearts unto true wisdom, we would start loving the things that we have to do. When I was a Bible college student, I had an awful job. I worked as an orderly in a nursing home. I was a professional diaper changer. And they weren't these teeny little things that you have in the nursery back here. It was sometimes awful. You say, how did you do that? Well, it was a whole lot easier when you learned to care about your patients. It just was. It wasn't just a job. It was taking care of people. You see, when you apply your heart, all of a sudden, those nasty, horrible things that you don't want to do aren't so nasty and horrible anymore. Because there's a purpose in getting those things accomplished. And that purpose that's in here is understanding I am not serving God so that when I'm dead and gone, people can say nice things about me. It is serving God because wisdom demands service to the God of this book called the Bible and no one and nothing else. Amen? Wisdom demands obedience to God's Word. And when I apply my heart unto wisdom, how many times? Oh, preacher's going to ask about my daily Bible reading schedule again. Oh, my. When my heart is applied unto wisdom, I want to read this book. Because that's where my heart is. Amen? When I apply my heart unto wisdom, it's not a burden to be in church. I'm there because my heart drives me to be there. It's not a burden to give to the missionaries because my heart drives me to give. It's not a burden to lay aside some of the things of this world and say, you know, (coughs) excuse me, I just have to give up a few things here so that I can be more free to serve the Lord because my heart's applied into wisdom. Because when I stand before God's judgment seat, I I want him to be able to say things about me that would bring glory to his person. Amen? But it's not going to happen if I can't apply my heart unto wisdom. The key to walking that narrow way that Jesus talks about is asking God to grab a hold of my heart and press it into the way that Paul put it this way, it's the love of Christ that constraineth us. By the way, how many people here know what a constraint is? That was something I had to learn how to use in the nursing home to keep people from falling out of their wheelchairs. Or, as we had one individual... I can still see him. Old Mr. Crockett would get out of bed at 5 a.m. and dance across the hallway till he found the fire alarm. 
And then he would wave at the nurse. I saw him do it once. And there it goes. He got into the habit of doing that every morning. And we had a meeting. And the head nurse got out the constraints and said, you're going to use these to keep Mr. Crockett away from the fire alarms. And if you don't use them properly, you're going to lose your job. Uh, Let me tell you, they work. But when's the last time you felt the constraining force of God's love forcing your heart to love the things that God wants you to love? You see, that's why Moses, as he wrote this, so teach us. Teaching is a two-way street. You have to have someone to give you the knowledge, the teacher. But teachers without teachees or receptors of that teaching is absolutely a worthless endeavor. That's why I'm not a fan of the blogosphere. Is we have a whole bunch of people desiring to be teachers, but they're not teaching anybody. They're just writing for the atmosphere. I heard one guy talk about, well, I just write because it's a release for me. Well, if I teach something, I, I want to I have a purpose. I, I want to be able to look in someone's face and say, hey, let me show you what the Bible says. That's what preaching is all about. Amen. Teach us, Lord, teach us to apply our hearts unto wisdom. You know, that old flesh just loves to rear up. There are lots of things that we like. And and we often talk about this, just stop and think about how many things that you do just for your own personal enjoyment and comfort during a week. Now, I'm a person that enjoys a good cup of coffee. Number one, if it's hot, it better be hot. If it's cold, I like iced coffee, but I I don't want it cold. I mean, lots of ice. I don't like warm iced coffee or tepid hot coffee. I, I like it blistering hot and icy cold. Don't, I mean, am I the only one that's like that? And it takes a little bit of time to get those things accomplished. And I know all the dairy products are bad, but until the doctor actually restricts me with ball and chain and duct tape, I'm going to put as much half and half in my coffee as I can get in the cup. I enjoy that. But but we do these things for ourselves. Could we let our hearts walk in the ways of God's wisdom? Apply. God, teach us to number our days that we can apply our hearts unto wisdom. And the next verse there says, Return, O Lord, how long let it repent thee concerning thy servants. God is willing to forgive us. That's what this is talking about. God must judge every sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. When we stand before God under the blood of Jesus... God can use us to be his servants. But you've got to allow God to teach you how to apply your heart unto wisdom. Otherwise, your heart will be applied unto many different things that will detract your attention and your service from God. What's the next phrase? Verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy. 
Oh, I wish we could spend the whole morning just on this thought. Satisfied. How many of you have ever sat down to a truly satisfying meal? I mean, everything was just right. Four or five hours later, what was the problem? He was hungry again. How many of you have ever set a goal and say, if I could have just attained this salary level or this accomplishment or, or this, uh, uh, this item, uh, I, I, would, I think I would be satisfied. Only to find out that once you have that thing, it doesn't mean as much now that you have it as it did before when you didn't. I mean, satisfaction is something that happens in your mind. And you know what? In your heart, and unless you choose to be satisfied, there's nothing in the universe that will satisfy you. Okay, I think it was Rockefeller or one of those guys said, how much money is enough? Just another dollar. You can't be satisfied with money. I remember the first computer that I actually owned operated at a blazing. It was one of the fastest computers in the world at that time. 7.53 megahertz. That was fast. (laughs) Now it's in gigahertz. Don't ask me to explain that. I I mean, and no matter how fast you get and how powerful a computer you have, before it gets home, they got one that's faster and more powerful and one that's bigger and sharper and all the things that are there. If you want to be satisfied, here's something to be satisfied with. God's mercy. How many of you remember the definition of mercy? We've gone over it many times. Mercy is what the defeated receives when he surrenders to the victor. Say, now wait a minute, do I want to be satisfied with defeat? Uh, You do when it comes to God, my friend. Satisfy us early with thy mercy. If you're here today and you know your sins are forgiven and heaven's your home and you have an eternity that is secure with God, there's only one reason you can make that statement. It's because of God's mercy. It's because God forgave you when you admitted that you were a lost sinner on your way to hell. That you admitted there was nothing that you could do to be pleasing to God and you surrendered everything you are and ever will be to the holy God of heaven, the writer of this book called the Bible. And he gave you mercy. Mercy was purchased on an old rugged cross. It is free to all who will ask for it. But that's not because it was cheap, my friend. It's free because no human being could attain to the price to purchase one drop of God's mercy. And yet Moses, 1,800 years before Jesus walked the earth, says, satisfy us early with thy mercy. Why? So that we can rejoice. Is there much to rejoice about today? The forgiveness of sins. How about that? The peace with God. How about that? How about the ability to love my enemies? 
How about the ability not to be bitter toward another human being? I mean, those are some things we can rejoice in. The promise of heaven, can we rejoice in that? The rejoicing in the fact that one day we'll be with our Savior. You see, it says, Satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Moses was writing. Had Moses seen evil in his day? His entire people were enslaved in Egypt with hard bondage and labor and even to the point to where Pharaoh said, if you have a, a boy born in your family, you've got to drown him in the river. And can you imagine living in that society? And so Moses' mother obeyed Pharaoh and put Moses in the river, only in an ark first. Amen? He was raised in the house of Pharaoh. Moses had seen evil. He said, Lord, let us rejoice and be glad, knowing that even though mankind works evil, God is working good. Amen? And then the last here, verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 16 and 17. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. You know, God expects you to do something with the life he's given you. It says, let thy work appear unto thy servants. How many times have you been involved in something that you just thought had no purpose to it? I'm just such a small cog in the great machinery of life. Nobody cares who I am. I'm not important. Moses is saying, let thy work appear unto thy servants. He doesn't say, let thy work be performed, because everybody's going to do something unless you're going to choose to sit in a padded cell for the rest of your life. You're going to be doing something. So what does this word appear? It means to make visible. The first word we gave was priority. I didn't spend much time with this with mercy, but the word surrender and mercy are together. Amen. And this last one is purpose. We get discouraged because we have no purpose. I'm just going through the motions. I'm just day in and day out. Sometimes I think of all the meals that my wife has prepared in our 23 years of marriage. All the diapers that she's had to change. All the laundry that has had to be done. Think of all that. Is there a purpose to all that? Let me tell you, there's a purpose. There's a real purpose to all of those things. Is there a purpose to showing up to work tomorrow morning? Let me tell you, there's a purpose. And it's not just so you can get a paycheck, so you can pay your bills, so you can go back to work. There is a service that we must perform with our lives to the God of this book called the Bible. How are you going to accomplish that? The Bible says if you provide not for your own, you're worse than an infidel and have denied the faith. You've got to take care of things, but 
if all I'm about is providing for my family, have I applied my heart to wisdom? Absolutely not. There's a lot more to what we're doing. You see, we pass out tracts. Well over a million tracts our church has passed out on the streets of Astoria. On Sunday morning, well, look around. I don't know what the exact count is. I'm very bad at that. But somewhere around 100 people here this morning. Praise the Lord. But what about the 999,900 and some odd tracks? Let me tell you, it's worth the effort for the ones that do. Let thy work appear. What's the next phrase says? And thy glory unto their children. You see, let us see that there's a purpose in living for God, in doing right when everyone around us does wrong. There's still a purpose here. And one of the greatest problems is we lose the next generation because we do not allow God's glory to appear to our children. You know what? It doesn't hurt for your kids to work up a sweat. It doesn't hurt for them to get a few blisters on their hands. It doesn't hurt for them to work a little bit. There's a purpose to work. We have this idea that every generation in America ought to have it a little better than the last. But let me ask you, where would we be without the suffering of those patriots in the 1700s, of those men who pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor to establishing a nation where men could rule themselves. Never heard of in history before that. Oh yeah, there were democracies, but there wasn't this. Because there wasn't people that had the word of God that had enough freedom to establish something like this. But if we don't teach our children, if we don't let them see God's glory, and the last... Verse verse 17, it says, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. When is the last time someone could look at you, look at your life, and say, God is good? That's what's being said here, a poetic way of saying that. Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Lord, do something with our lives. Here we are. 38, almost, uh, yeah, almost 4,000 years removed from the days of Moses. And we still talk about Moses going in and saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, do we not? We still talk about the Red Sea crossing. We still talk about all the miracles that God did. We talk about the wandering in the wilderness, the building of the tabernacle. All of those things were there to teach us. How to serve God. We talk and we ought to tell the tales of people who have given and suffered. Spent many of their greatest years in prison and their only crime. Was wanting to teach this book without a state license. To be baptized the way Jesus was. To just serve God honestly and clearly. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is simply this. Everybody, and we ought to take time today to look back on the 10 years that have expired since the attacks of 9-11. But I'm very pleased to say that our church 
was already doing the right things before 9-11. And we didn't have to change much around here. But we still need to ask God to apply our hearts unto wisdom so that we will love His ways and not ours. We need to number our years, number our days. We need to pray that God would satisfy us with mercy, that we wouldn't be seeking all the things that are out there, that we would be satisfied with the surrender to the will and the plan of Almighty God. And we would realize that the little things that God has us doing are not insignificant, but it is a method and it is God's plan to use our lives to show this world that God is good. It is to take the next generation and teach them the glory of God in simple service. It is being able to look at the things we're doing and understand that it is not our effort and our ability that is doing the work. It is the fact that our hearts have been applied to God's wisdom and we have surrendered to His mercy and now it is His grace that is performing through our lives. Could we ask that God would do this and use us and then if some great event happens We'll be prepared because we're already doing the things we ought to do. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And as we enter the time of invitation. We would ask that we would have opportunity to look into our own individual hearts and souls. Lord, maybe our heart has not been applied unto wisdom as it should. Lord, maybe we've not been satisfied with thy mercy. Lord, maybe we're just looking at the things we're doing as insignificant and worthless. We, we don't see the work that you want us to see. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of rededication. A day of stopping our thought processes on how we may be great or accomplish the things that we want. But Lord, that we would allow that tale that is to be told to be written by your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives just one day at a time until Jesus comes. Lord, I pray today for those that are here that may not be saved, that today would be that day where they would trust you and surrender their lives. Because none of this applies to someone who is not saved. We ask you to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.